everyone. Thank you for tuning into the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's October 31st, 2019. It's Halloween today, and you're listening to episode 146, which is a conversation about Satan and the occult. Today's guest is John D. Ferrer, who has a Ph.D. in philosophy of religion from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also a teaching fellow at the Equal Rights Institute. John has written two online exclusive articles for the Christian Research Journal. One is a film review of the documentary film Hail Satan, and it's called Satanic Lessons on Religious Freedom, a Review of Hail Satan. The other is a feature article for the Christian Research Journal, and it is called Infiltrated, Recognizing and Responding to Occultism in Your Church. And you can read both of these articles free online at our website, equip.org. John, it's good to have you on again. Good to be here. Hail Satan is a 2019 documentary film about the Satanic Temple, and it covers its origins and all of its grassroots kind of political activism. It's directed by a woman named Penny Lane, and it first premiered earlier this year at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. And earlier this month, the International Documentary Association's IDA Awards And that's one of the awards that's kind of a strong indication of potential Oscar buzz. They have various different categories that they're announcing for their own awards. And in the category of Best Documentary, Hail Satan was one of the 30 finalist documentary features from 375 submissions. Well, for our listeners, this is an interesting documentary I watched it on Netflix. I didn't get to see it in the theater, but I know that John got to watch Hail Satan when it was first released in the theater. So how did you feel going into a theater specifically to watch a film that, you know, basically showcases Satanism? It did feel a little weird. I knew it was for research purposes, so I didn't feel like it was sinful, uh, but it felt pretty close. Um, we actually had to drive three hours from where we live in Iowa to Omaha, Nebraska to get to the nearest theater that was showing this movie and pretty empty theater, maybe about a dozen other people in there. I think there must've been like a local humanist slash atheist slash maybe even Satanist club that was present there, but they just look like reasonably normal people. You know, no one had black trench coats and spiked hats or anything like that. There were just some people with little skeptics, pins and badges and things like that. But overall, it was a movie. (laughs) It felt like going to a movie, uh, art house movie. But yeah, it was good. Yeah, they showed it at the local art house theater. I didn't actually, like I said, see it in the theater, but they did show it in my town. Although I would say that it's kind of unusual that it was shown like somewhere in a you know, town in the Midwest. I guess that's not where I expect this film to be shown. So in watching it, even at home, it felt a little weird also that I was turning on this film. I think I had to actually rent it. I watched on Amazon. So it's kind of weird. I just paid money to watch this film about Satanism at my house. So what were you expecting from this film? I mean, did it live up to your expectations, what you thought they would cover or what were you feeling like it would be like when you were thinking, I'm okay, I'm going to watch this film? Well, I wasn't sure quite what to expect. I, I tried to purposefully suspend expectations, uh, but I had heard about the Satanic Temple. That's the, the main group uh, showcased throughout the movie. That's what the, the documentary is about, this particular group that started about 2012. They're a new brand of Satanism. And I'd heard a little bit about them. I'd seen some of the news articles regarding what they were up to. I did a little prior research on them, going to their website and finding little things in pop culture about them. So I had some sense of who they were, but I didn't know whether this documentary was going to be giving a uh, positive, even propagandist kind of treatment of them, if it was going to be a fair-minded documentary, if it was going to lampoon them or kind of poke fun at them and make fun of them. I wasn't sure. 
Um, did it live up to the limited expectations I have? Actually, I was pleasantly surprised. It was a fairly well done documentary as a documentary. Well, I don't think all of our listeners and maybe a majority of them wouldn't ever see this movie. I would say you could see this movie, but there are certain things that you're going to fast forward through that are just frankly really offensive and profane. But it's probably good that most people don't watch the film. I mean, we did because we we're doing this podcast and we're in apologetics. But at the same time, while there were certain elements of it that were extremely profane, I felt like there weren't more bad words than an R-rated movie or something like that. But, you know, our listeners would probably still like to know what it's about and why would it really apply for some Christians who could see it to even see it. So maybe you could just summarize a few phrases to kind of describe this movie for our listeners. Uh, three phrases that would come to mind about this movie would be political activism. Perhaps the main theme in this movie is that the Temple of Satan is politically active. They're trying to shake things up. They're trying to advocate primarily for a specific issue, religious freedom, as they understand it. But they would probably use the terminology of separation of church and state, specifically trying to get all vestiges of Christian influence out of the public sector at least in regards to deliberate influence or things like Ten Commandments on courthouse walls or on the lawn, prayers over government meetings, prayer in schools, those kinds of things. Those would be deemed a violation, as they understand, a violation of the separation of church and state. So political activism and religious freedom are the biggest themes. But the other part, it might sound like an insult, but it's not really. Trolling. This group is world-class trolling. It's like an art to be able to generate that much publicity and to get such a rise out of people. At some level, it feels like there's this middle school boy just trying to annoy people, but there's more substance behind it than just trolling. It's not just trying to get a rise out of people. It's trying to disturb, upset and get people angry over things that are matters, as they see it, matters of truth and goodness. And this kind of stems from what I think is a good description of the group. This would be my third phrase, uh, opposition defiant disorder. If oppositional defiant disorder were a religion, it would be the temple of Satan. I think honestly, if you were to ask many of them, they'd probably not because there's a deliberate oppositionalism that's woven throughout it. It's a bunch of people that follow, as they define it, the left-fold path or the left-hand path. It's intentionally divergent, but not just divergent. It's trying to raise awareness in part by being deliberately rebellious. So those themes, I think, really would help a person understand what's going on in this movie expect that it will be trolling them. And if they come from a fairly conventional Christian background, there's a lot that will offend you. And it's much of it is directly oppositional to your worldview. And it's pushing for political activism to get people like you know, a Christian research journal, people like the religious right out of public influence in government affairs. So you might need to explain what trolling is. I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar. That's kind of more maybe contemporary slang, specifically for things that happen on the internet, but maybe you can explain that just a little bit so that people will know what you mean by it. That's a fair point. So suppose you put something on social media, you post something about your family and someone types in, wow, what an ugly bunch of suckers there. Now, this person might not actually be trying to insult. They might be trying to start a little argument, start a fight, get you to act in a certain way. And the more upset you are, the more effective they have been at trolling. Now, that's a pretty simplistic version. More sophisticated forms of trolling, the person's trying to get a rise out of you without you realizing that they're just pulling your chain. They're just messing with you. They may not even believe what they're saying, or they may not even have any strong feelings about it, but they know you do. So they act or speak in such a way that gets a really strong rise out of you. An example with the satanic church, pushing to have 
satanic prayer in school or satanic prayer at a government meeting. So when the town council meets at middle of nowhere, Texas, and they open their council meeting, their public governmental council meeting with Christian prayer. And it seems all the pastors they invite to give the prayer are all Christian. Well, that's not religiously free. And so they would say, hey, if you're going to be fair, you need to let Satanists be allowed to give their prayers. Now, they may not actually be terribly concerned about getting a public platform for their prayer, but they're using such an offensive threat to get Christians to stop praying in these events. So they're not necessarily believing that satanic prayer is really important and it needs to be done in a public governmental setting. They're just using that as a threat to upset people and say, okay, okay, maybe we shouldn't have Christian prayer at a government meeting. Okay. So that's a pretty effective means of trolling. But you notice it's not just trying to get a rise out of people. It's very strategic. And oftentimes it's very informed with their council of lawyers because they have enough lawyers to be able to identify what has some potential traction in a courtroom and what doesn't. Well, I know they did things in the movie that were specifically, I thought, were a little bit snarky. Like they have their headquarters in Salem, Massachusetts, and then they buy a home there and they paint it black and all these kinds of things that they think that people are going to associate with Satanism. So they do those kinds of things in the film that they document. Now, as one of the kind of phrases that you characterized this movie about, you mentioned briefly religious freedom, like political activism, and it is, you know, a significant part of this film. So what does religious freedom have to do in a way that maybe Satanists and Christians could agree? Because, you know, the Christian Research Journal, we don't cover politics, but yet there's certain issues around ethics that we do cover. And so how does this overlap with apologetics and concerns that Christians would have? Well, the subject of religious freedom is something that Christians need to be deeply invested in. The church should not consider this a merely political issue and then suspend it and not get involved. Their own sense of religious freedom may be distorted to where they think there's nothing they should be doing to try to defend this idea. Well, we're finding different areas in society, different schools, different towns and counties and cities and states that do not necessarily have a high respect for, say, free Christian expression on issues such as LGBT. Or recently in Texas, this young child, his mother won a court case against her husband for sole custody, and she admits that she intends to use puberty blockers for this child. Uh, who's seven years old, because she understands this child to be identifying as a girl when he's a boy. Well, is there religious freedom to intervene with a case like that that's so divisive? I think the church needs to take seriously this issue and recognize that religious freedom won't defend itself. Now, religious freedom is the phrasing I prefer, but there's a lot who would more often use the phrase separation of church and state. I don't like the phrase separation of church and state without lots of explanation. Separation of church and state doesn't offer any guarantee that the church will have any freedom once it's separated from the state. You could have separation of church and state and have a thoroughly secular government that has no freedom of religious expression, but they have separation of church and state. Instead, I think the more substantial idea is religious freedom, freedom which includes freedom of assembly, which includes freedom of speech, which includes freedom of the press. There's a reason why in the First Amendment, religious freedom is mentioned after the series of other uh, amendments, in part because religious freedom might be the most sophisticated of recognized human rights that we normally have within the civil society, because it entails freedom of assembly, freedom of press, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience. Without those things, then we don't really have freedom of religion. So this creates an interesting area of agreement with Satanists and Christians. Now, it's not full agreement. There's definitely going to be strong disagreement about how much Christian influence can be expressed among 
political officials and how much of Christian history within the United States, for example, can be recognized as a civil religion or as tradition and sort of grandfathered in. There's going to be lots of disagreement over that. But Christians should take seriously some of the arguments that the Temple of Satan are making regarding how much intrusion from the church on the government is too much. They may draw that line in a different place than we are, but we need to recognize that a full theocracy, which is what they're kind of pushing against, a full theocracy isn't a great answer either. If we had a strong fusion of church and state, then we would have some of the same problems that it took us many religious wars and a lot of church history to escape. We didn't really have a legitimate separation of church and state that I'm aware of until, say, Protestant Reformation and later. So that's almost 1,500 years of church history where we tended to try to fuse those, and there was a lot of bloodshed over that. If we were to try to force a close fusion of church and state in the U.S., we run a lot of risks under the banner of theocracy. We need something more tactical that can honor religious expression and not force people into religious adherence by rule of law. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is John D. Ferrer, and he's written two online exclusive articles for the Christian Research Journal. One is a film review of the documentary film Hail Satan called Satanic Lessons on Religious Freedom, and the other is a feature-length article for the Christian Research Journal. It's called Infiltrated, Recognizing and Responding to Occultism in Your Church. Both of these articles are up on our website for free, and you can read them at equip.org. We'd also like to invite you to subscribe to the journal. A subscription is $33.50. And to subscribe, please visit our website, equip.org. But if a subscription is not in your budget this month, we'd like to ask you to partner with us by giving us the gift of your time in two specific ways. One would be to rate and review our podcast, maybe on Apple Podcasts, if that's where you get your podcast or wherever you might get your podcast. If you're not already subscribing to our podcast on any platform, that hosts podcasts, please specifically look for Postmodern Realities Podcast and subscribe to it. And when you rate and review our podcast, the more of those that we have, the easier it is for people to find our podcast. Another way that you could help us out would be to go over to YouTube and subscribe to the Bible Answer Man channel, which is the channel for the Christian Research Institute. And you will find this particular episode up there where you can click on that and make a comment. That's a way that you can comment, put a comment about this podcast. What did you think about our review of Hail Satan? What do you think about occultism creeping into Christian churches? We'd love for you to put a comment on that video link because the more comments that we have underneath that video, the more likes that we have, the more people can find the Postmodern Realities podcast on YouTube. So you could help us out that way. The other way is if you have a small amount, but you don't have enough for a subscription, but you'd be open to tipping us, you can tip us for our content. If you go to our website, equip.org, and go to magazine, that's at the top of our front homepage, and you do the drop-down link, you'll see PMR Podcast. Click on that. You'll find the landing page for this episode on Hail Satan and Occultism. If you click on that landing page, there's a link that you can find there to tip us. A tip might be $3 or $5. That might be the cost of your favorite coffee espresso drink. If you drink coffee or maybe it's the cost of a lunch out, you'd be willing to miss one of those two things for the week and give us a tip or whatever tip you might want to do. You can do that at the landing page. And we thank you for your support, whether it's by commenting or reviewing and rating our content, or by giving us a tip or subscribing. We want you to know that we are so grateful for your partnership with the Christian Research Journal. Well, in your film review of this documentary, Hail Satan, you highlight some of the you know common misunderstandings that people have about Satanism. And I also want to let our listeners know that we have a feature article on Satanism that's free on our website, equip.org, and it's called Satanism, a Taste for the dark side, if you want to look that up, we'll have a link for it on the landing page of this episode on our website. But could you give us some examples about just how people misunderstand 
what satanic beliefs really are, people who practice Satanism. Sure. A couple common misunderstandings regarding Satanism are that all Satanists are basically the same ball of wax, when in reality, Satanists have different denominations. So you asked about beliefs. Well, it depends on which denomination of Satanism you're talking about. I say denomination. I don't know if that's their preferred word, but it helps me understand the different categories out there. We can probably compare the different ones later. But another thing that might be surprising is most contemporary Satanists are atheists. Yes, they believe in a sort of Satan, but not a supernatural antithesis of God kind of being, but more like a metaphor of all things oppositional, left-hand path, uh, rebellious, alternative narrative. Those are sort of embodied with sort of the personified language of Satan, but they don't necessarily believe in a personal or spiritual Satan. Almost all of them are atheists. Another thing that might be surprising is that when you see the Temple of Satan, for example, and their big Baphomet goat head statue that they tried to erect on government property, or if you've seen some of their pro-choice protests where people are wearing baby masks and using whips and lashes and just really weird, strange stuff, people may not realize that those theatrics are mostly for show. They have artistic significance to them, but not necessarily any great theological weight to them. The symbols, the signs that they may use aren't necessarily magically charged, at least for the Temple of Satan. They don't necessarily believe in magic. They don't try to practice magic. So when you see a Satanist wearing black, it's not because they think black is more sacred or more special. It's because it gets a rise out of people. It's because it draws attention. It leads people to ask, what are you? What's your deal? What's going on? The theatrics are showmanship. And now, I don't say that to demean it, but it doesn't necessarily have this theological framework surrounding it like Christians might with their outward practices. Yeah, the theatrics are mostly for show. I felt like in the movie that a lot of the things that they did whether they would dress up a certain way or they would perform quote unquote satanic worship services or whatever. They just tried to think of the things that would be most offensive to people and then just do those. So I didn't get the impression that they really literally believed that Satan exists. It was just more like, oh, okay, yeah, this will really offend people if we have our headquarters in Salem, Massachusetts and paint this house black and wear these devil horns or whatever it may be, just because it, like you said, that's trolling because it'll just really offend people and they just got a kick out of that, really. You made me think of another point with it. A lot of those elements that you mentioned are deliberate reactions against Christianity and Christian culture. And that's part of the trolling, part of the oppositional defiant disorder, where there is a historically or traditionally Christian expression, oftentimes you'll see the Satanist community find a way to react against that in some alternative version, some uh, uh, maybe a counterfeit, but more like a photo negative, trying to directly invert it. So instead of Catholic mass, Satanists are known for practicing black mass. I don't recall if the Temple of Satan makes regular practice of that, but I think they have done something like that in the past. And I know Levian Satanists, which is a different denomination, that's a big thing for them. But they'll take Salem. Salem was a famous place where Christians, with their influence in government, were able to exact civil charges and have death sentences issued against people for their witchcraft. That is an unholy place in the sense of a very dark time for Christian history. And so the Satanists for the Satanic Temple gravitated to that spot, not because Salem is some you know, lightning rod for occult power or anything, but because it's a reaction against. They're trying to take that and say, hey, this is exactly what you would fear the most is that we identify with these people you tried to kill. And we are representing them in spirit, not any spiritual, you know, ghost sense, but 
they're representing that opposition to theocracy. Well, you've mentioned a couple of times that there's different groups within Satanism that practice Satanism. There's not just one, you know, overarching group of Satanists. And the one that they focus on in this particular documentary, Hail Satan, is the Satanic Temple. So how does the Satanic Temple differ from other branches of, or you're calling them denominations of Satanism? Well, there are who knows how many different kinds of Satanism out there. The The nature of Satanism is that it's up until recently, most Satanists haven't been trying to draw a lot of attention and come out of the woodwork and get publicity. So who knows how many others might be out there, but there's at least two that do stand out. Uh, one is the Temple of Set. Practitioners would be called Setans or Satans with a long E. And their religious practice would be called Satanism or Satanism. They don't believe in the temple of Satan. The ones showcased in this documentary don't believe in a literal Satan, but Setans do. They think his name is Set. And the temple of Set, they do believe in a supernatural realm with a personal, literal spirit being recognized as Satan. We don't know all that much about them. They are far more secretive. I'm sure someone who has the gumption to do some uh, some insider reporting could dig up some stuff on them, but that's not me. The next major denomination of Satanism is what could be called Levian Satanists or the Church of Satan. In the late 1960s, I believe it was 1969, Anton LaVey founded a church of Satan. It never got official government sanction, to my knowledge, as a recognized, you know, 501c3 kind of thing. But compared to Levian Satanists, the Temple of Satan, they're both atheistic. They both tend to use a lot of the same imagery, a lot of the same wardrobe, a lot of the same theatrics. Neither group is shy when it comes to getting a microphone, but the Satanic Temple co-founded by Lucian Greaves, rejects magic, whereas Levian Satanists affirm magic. The Temple of Satan is broadly egalitarian, sees people as broadly equal, kind of politically progressive, equal opportunity like that, whereas Levian Satanists and the Church of Satan, those folks affirm social Darwinism, survival of the fittest, and tend to speak and teach with the sense that People who have fallen for typical religious dogma tend to speak about them scornfully, and people who have Christian morality as their preferred moral set tend to view those folks with scorn and and as lesser and deserving of whatever punishment or consequences come to them. Neither group, the Levians or those of Lucian Greaves, neither group promotes outward violence, not that I know of, but the Levian Satanists sound more bitter and scornful towards people who they think they're better than. And the Temple of Satan and Lucian Greaves group, they don't see people quite like that, or at least not in their public writings and public statements. The new Satanism with the Temple of Satan, they are altruistic and they explicitly reject violence, especially against children, and support social causes food drives, clothing drives, things like that. Whereas Levian Satanists tended to be more egoistic and visual focused, me first. Probably the biggest overarching difference between these two groups is that the Temple of Satan is politically and socially active. They're trying to shake things up in the socio-political sphere. They want to make a name for themselves. They've kind of come out of the dark closet and, and flip the light on so that they can try to expose what they see as, as cockroaches who have, uh, I don't know if they use the word cockroaches, but stretching the metaphor too thin, but they want to dispel corruption where religious influence has too lazily slinked into political spheres without being aggressively pushed out. Again, theocracy and religious freedom issues. The Levian Satanists tended to be unengaged, and they weren't trying to draw a lot of attention regarding politics and social activism. 
Well, one of the things that you mentioned about the Satanic Temple in specific was that they are mostly atheists. So if you think about some of the well-known atheists, for example, in the New Atheism Movement, like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris or people like that, how do their beliefs compare to just some of the new atheists that are well-known out there? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. That's a really fascinating connection that I wasn't expecting. When I came into the theater watching this documentary, I expected to find a lot of vivid storyline about these social activists. What I didn't expect is how readily this group of people seemed to fit the profile of another group of people that I've spent a lot of my apologetics career focusing on, which is atheists. And in particular, the new atheists. So the the Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and all of their ideological progeny from there on out. New atheism, in large part, is fueled by the internet age, by the ability to connect with other atheists in different parts of the world, uh, meme level intellectual objections. A lot of those things kind of add layers of easy access to non-belief. Whereas, say, 20 years ago, atheists had to deal with relative isolation and seclusion, except for some university settings where you could have other colleagues and classes and fellow students that were atheists. In the rest of the world, for the most part, the atheists weren't as easily connected to each other. They didn't have the internet to help them do it. And also the effect of the internet on information changed things a little bit, but that's getting off on a little tangent. But what I found interesting connecting new atheism to the satanic temple was not just that the satanic temple members were atheists, but that they seem to be the same kind of atheists as we're seeing with new atheism. That is aggressively advocating for secularism, especially in the public sphere scorning religious influence in government, politically left-wing. So many of them would be uh, outspoken activists for the LGBT movement and feminists and pro-choice, things like that. So left-wing. Also, another facet they had in common with new atheism was being confrontational, aggressive about their ideas, and even militant about it, but not really violent. They weren't necessarily trying to start riots, but they were trying to upset the establishment. And you would hear some of the language overlap a lot with these groups because they're both aggressively promoting their outlook. They're not just saying, hey, we got this new thing over here. You're welcome to come. See you later. We got donuts. Come on Saturdays. We'd love to have you. It's more like, here's what's wrong with your church. Here's what's wrong with your religion. Here's what's wrong with what you're doing in society. And trying to get a camera, using theatrics to get that news story, calling the newspaper saying, hey, have you heard about that Baphomet, that goat head statue that the Satanists are trying to put on the government lawn? And they're trying to get out there and start some controversy. Also, I found that there were similarities in in psychological profile. Now, I'm generalizing here. I'm painting with a broad brush. Not every member of the Satanic Temple fits this profile, and not every new atheist fits this profile. But if you were to take, say, a sample of 100 new atheists and 100 members of the Satanic Temple, you'll see tendencies towards being a social outcast, or at least they were. Often they're intellectual, smart. Many of them are college educated and acquired some of their, you might say, best material through classes and in school. Many of them are gamer types, nerds, because, you know, nerds, the new chic, nerds, the new black. It's not quite the same insult it used to be. I identify as a nerd, but many of them are fairly nerdy or will be into LARPing, live action role playing and dressing up and using theatrical expressions and having a lot of fun dressing up in public to have displays that fit with your beliefs and the things you are entertained by. Often they're resentful and Many of them have stories of how they were hurt by the church or by Christians. So there's a lot of overlap between New Atheists and the Satanic Temple, but I'm dealing in generalities here. If you were to run into a person who identifies as a follower of the Satanic Temple, a member, don't assume that they fit all of this, but there's higher probability than not that they fit this kind of profile. I do want to tell everybody that when we published 
our review of this Hail Satan documentary, the review that John wrote, it got some buzz online. And I noticed that the Satanic Temple saw it and tweeted it out. And because of that, we had so many hits to our website for people reading the article. So tell us a little bit about how that happened. I did feel that they were very respectful. They weren't trolling yeah. in that instant. Yeah, yeah. It was a pleasant surprise. I didn't think I would be so honored to uh, be mentioned by Satanists. But what they did was apparently they saw your post, I think it was on Twitter, about my review that I just posted on the Hail Satan documentary. And they saw that and started responding and reading the review. And many of them actually had a reasonably favorable opinion. They found that the review was fair-minded. Now, they would express it with some curse words and stuff, but, you know, that's par for the course. Nothing shocking there. I had a little bit of conversation that followed after that with some of them. Nothing, you know, groundbreaking, but it was a pleasant exchange. And I felt like the thing that was so redeeming about the article in their eyes was that I was trying to be fair in understanding who they were, where they come from, and why they do what they do. I did not want to jump on the attack and misrepresent them because quite frankly, Satanists throughout history are used to being misrepresented and attacked and used as the paradigmatic example, the, the, the creme de la creme of what you don't want to be, of what you don't want to be identified with. And so there's a lot of different misinformation about who Satanists actually are because the people largely defining it are folks who aren't Satanists. It's usually Christians saying, that's what a Satanist does. That's a lie from the pits of hell. That's a lie from Satan. And you must be a Satanist because of this, this, and this. And there's a lot of ignorance fueling this effort to sort of define what Satanism is rather than actually letting Satanists speak for themselves to say, what do you believe? What do you hold to? What do you value? And so I tried to approach them that way. And I think I also found a little resonance with several of them because I expressed deep sympathy for many of the Satanists in there. There was this one portion of the documentary where people started sharing their testimony of how they came to be a member of the Satanic Temple. And my heart went out to them. My heart broke for them because I recognize you, me, most all Christians are one or two circumstances away from being right where those people sit. And their hurts, oftentimes at the hands of Christians and churches and hyper-fundamentalism and anti-intellectualism and heavy-handed dogmatism, the hurts that they experienced help take them not just away from the church, but drive them from atheism into Satanism. And it became clear to me in reading their responses through social media and in watching the film, people reject the church and turn to atheism, oftentimes with only intellectual objections that they could call to mind. But you don't become a Satanist just because of intellectual objections. There has to be an emotional component too, because to identify as a Satanist is to identify yourself outside of conventional society. You are not identifying with the normal accepted groups within society. So why are you going to take on that extra difficulty unless you're upset? And so take atheism and then add hurts at the hands of church. And that seems to be the recipe for a lot of these Satanists and why they came to identify with the, the Satanic temple. And it checks us as Christians, reminding us how important it is to be gracious, to be hospitable, to be representing Christ to people, even who reject Christ and openly blaspheme against him. How can we be Jesus to those people? Because they're not Satan, they're people. Our only true enemy is Satan, right? And so these people, I think they're deceived, but I don't think they're subhuman. And so I think that approach that I brought to it actually was endearing to several of them. So I was pleasantly surprised to get positive feedback from several Satanists. Well, I know that everyone listening is going to want to know, should they see this film? I mean, should Christians see this film? 
And like I said, I don't think a majority of Christians might not be able to see it, like could see this film. It might be very objectionable to them. Like I said, there are some very profane moments in it. But again, those profane moments in their quote-unquote satanic worship services are done for pure shock value, I thought. And they just try to think, and actually the head of the satanic temple says that. He tries to think of the most profane thing he could do to offend Christians. And he's like, okay, let's do that. So there are some of those. And I just kind of thought, well, I'm just gonna, you know, I just fast forwarded through that. There's no need to see that. But, you know, is this a movie that Christian audiences could see? I think for the thoughtful Christian, at least in my opinion, I think the thoughtful Christian who would be able to see an R-rated movie could see this movie. And again, you're not going to find as many profanities as you do in a lot of R-rated movies. There's certainly not going to be as much of certain things as you'd see in an R-rated movie, but it will make you think. But again, because it is profane, because it's a religious expression against Christianity to troll people, to troll Christians, maybe people would be off put by that. But what do you think? Uh, Yes and no. There's a mixed review here because for one, you said it's R-rated. It is R-rated. Fairly hard R. There's nudity and sexually charged but gory combination. There is foul language. There's a lot of intentional blasphemy. And within the realm of Christian freedom, we have a lot of latitude, but most people think they're spiritually more mature than they really are. And so most people would venture into things that they aren't really mature enough to watch with discernment or to listen to with discernment. And so they would end up getting more negative than positive out of it. This is definitely a what Hillary and I would call, Hillary's my wife, a chew and spit kind of movie that you really have to be able to chew what you're looking at to process and use your discernment and be able to spit out the parts that are not edifying and be able to swallow the parts that actually do have a kernel of truth in there. Because there's still important questions raised by the movie. There's still important issues that can challenge Christians about the way we go about things. I found the movie inspiring in the sense that I have renewed interest at cleaning up the messes that the church makes where we're too heavy-handed or too lazy or too anti-intellectual or too doctrinaire about things where maybe there is some latitude within orthodoxy, but we treated it like this is the only option. And a person who says, well, this other church says that. You've got disagreement within your church, but you act like they're going to hell when all they do is disagree about this point of doctrine, which your church father even promotes. Why is that? So the church has a lot of unpaid bills, to use Walter Martin's language. And he says, cults are the unpaid bills of the church. Well, the same goes for the occult and Satanism. They represent the unpaid bills of the church, the messes that we make. And so in that sense, I found this film a little inspiring, but most people who are Christians, I suspect, will find it more negative and inflammatory than positive. For research purposes, I think it's an important movie. For spiritually mature people who are willing to put their thinking caps on and exercise a lot of discernment, I think they can get some good out of this. But As a general recommendation for most Christians, I wouldn't recommend the movie. And it's streaming now. So if you do feel like you fit into that category of a mature Christian with freedom in which you think you could watch this movie and glean from it, it is available for renting on demand. Another thing that John has written for us is a feature length article, and I'd say it's related because it's on the occult. And it's also available free online at our website, equip.org. And I'd like to talk to him a little bit about it because it's got a very provocative title. It's a feature article that he's written for the Christian Research Journal, and it's called Infiltrated, Recognizing and Responding to Occultism in Your Church. So what exactly is the occult? I think it's, well, today's Halloween, so a lot of people are probably thinking about the occult, but maybe they don't really have a working definition of what is the occult. Okay. The word occult traces to a Latin word occultus, meaning secret or hidden. It broadly refers to secret or hidden power 
and or knowledge. Now that's recognized largely under three categories, spiritism or talking to spirits, fortune telling, and magic. So seances, rituals, efforts to manipulate world forces through the use of mental power, as opposed to natural resources, or as opposed to just conventional mind abilities. Like I can think I want to raise my arm and I raise my arm. That's not magic. That's a natural power. Uh, cultism tends to dabble in the forbidden and things that are, are prohibited according to historic Christian teaching. So there's several passages in scripture we could refer to in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and in the New Testament that forbid occult uh, practices. So there's no real question about whether occultism is wrong. More the question lies in how to recognize it and how to respond to it where we find it. Occultism sometimes is mistaken for cults or the cult. I was reading a book in church, uh, one of the guidebooks we're using for a class we're taking, and they were talking about how prophecy in scripture and in Christian practice compares to cultism, C-U-L-T-ism. And I don't think they realize that they were referring to occultism, not cultism. Cults refers to any theological deviation from a parent religion. So a Christian cult would have a theological disagreement over some historic Christian teaching. So if Mormons, for example, they deny monotheism, instead of there being only one God, Mormons historically recognize many gods. That's a fundamental difference on a key thing. Now, I've got friends who are Mormon, and God bless, I am thankful for their friendship and what they offer and the kindness that they've shown me. There's some great Mormons out there. But as far as theology goes, that's a fundamental difference, not a secondary difference. Jehovah's Witnesses are a Christian cult because they deny the Trinity. So cults differ on a core theological issue, but oftentimes they can be very closely related with Christianity and even thought of as a denomination for, say, census purposes. But the occult isn't so distinct, isn't so clear. It's not like it's some denomination separate from Christianity. It's not always a world religion either. The occult tends to be more like this fog that can sort of slink in under the doorway to any church, any religion, any denomination, and in Christianity in particular, because that's the focus of this article, that vague fog can creep into churches when we tire of the hard work of following God in his prescribed ways and loving and honoring God in the ways he's clearly permitted and opened the door for us. We settle for or seek out compromises so we can have more power and knowledge in forbidden ways that aren't allowed. Well, it seems like right now in culture in particular that occultism is kind of very hip. You know what I mean? It's in, we had a conversation earlier when you reviewed for us the television series on Netflix, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So there's this kind of resurgence in culture just of like witchcraft and occultism and psychics and all that kind of thing. So what is the appeal for occultism right now? Why do you think so many people are, you know, not only getting drawn into it, but it just seems like are really interested in it because of various different like pop culture shows and films, you know, and things like that, where people are really getting interested in, you know, talking to the dead or psychics or those kinds of things. At the most basic level, occultism's appeal is pretty obvious. Who doesn't want more power and knowledge? We all do. But I think what takes that desire for knowledge and power and turns it into occultism is a lack of trust in the modes of knowledge and power that God has already granted. Um, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, you can almost imagine the hissing syllables of the serpent questioning God's way, saying, has he really done this? Has he really said so? And the temptation there is to question whether God's ways are best. 
maybe he's hiding something from us. Maybe he's trying to keep us a little dumber. Or maybe he's trying to keep us disempowered. He must be an insecure God. Maybe he doesn't quite want what's best for us. And any of that line of questioning, that suspicion, that resentment aimed at God, multiplied by our pursuit of knowledge and power, I think that's the essence of occultism's appeal. This resentment, this questioning of whether God really had your best interests in mind. And so we seek an alternative route. Now, in society, occultism is entertaining. We tend to watch shows that have secrets in them, uh, big reveals, uh, conflicts that require some out-of-the-box solution. And so uh, occultism is a prominent feature in a lot of narrative. Now, some forms of occultism are so pasteurized, they're almost innocuous. They would technically qualify as occultism, though, depending on how strictly you register it. And you can find examples of magic and talking to the dead. You can find that in Lord of the Rings. You can find that kind of thing in Chronicles of Narnia. And so with such innocent examples as that, if there is a facet of occultism there that might be redeemed with some chew and spit method, you know, with some discernment, if we find occultism even there, then it's not going to be surprising to find all shades of it everywhere else. You don't have to think hard or look hard to find occult-themed shows on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or on TV. It's not hard to find books at your local bookstore that have occult themes. Something about occultism is appealing to us, and I think it's that that constant desire for, for more knowledge and more power. And I think the, one of the reasons why we have such a desire for knowledge and power is because we're made in God's image. We have this imago deus, and we have a great deal of knowledge and power. We have access to these kinds of things, a lot of natural rightful access. But we often forget that we're just reflectors of God and we're not God. It's an effort to have God's status, to want what he's got, to want his throne, to want his position. That's where a healthy desire for knowledge and power becomes occult excess. It's when we want God's hidden stores of knowledge and power. We want that too. We want to know the future. So we do fortune telling. We have our palms read. We appeal to the horoscopes or astrology to know the future when only God really knows the future. We want to have direct contact with angels at our beck and call. And so we use spiritism and seances to get spiritual beings to communicate with us to sort of force them. Or we want God to work on our terms. So we use formulas and rituals that we think will make God do what we're telling him to do. And so those kinds of things are things that Christians would do, but it represents an occult mentality because we're seeking to have God's place instead of revering God unchallenged. Well, the subtitle of your article is provocative. It's recognizing and responding to cultism in your church. I think the average Christian is going to say, I don't think there's occultism in Christian churches. So how would you say that occultism actually can seep into churches? I mean, how can people be practicing occultism or drawn to it or having it as part of, you know, church life that they're not even realizing if they're not in a well-rounded and healthy, well-balanced church that it's crept into their actual church? That's a really good question. And this is a big reason why I took on the study of occultism, because I've got no, I, I want to have a respectful distance between me and most of the occult world. I recognize the danger of occult fascination. Say with me, I like, I like scary movies and that could easily be a doorway into fascination with occultism because a lot of scary movies uh, play heavily on occult themes and so I would prefer to keep a pretty good distance from them, but I can't. Occultism still tends to find its way in the church, and I am deeply concerned for loving, honoring, protecting, developing the church, because God cares about the church, so it's right for us to care about the church. And many churchgoers are easy prey for occult practice, um, because their underlying worldview has 
filtered out a holy and righteous and decent Christian practice and left them instead with an occult practice. I think there are three overarching trends that typify an occult worldview, and that is depersonalizing God. So many churchgoers have a tendency to treat God more like an it than a he, more like this amorphous force, this power that you can control and direct towards your wishes. And that's God. And we will sometimes speak of God as love as if he's this abstract sense of love, like this floating ball of love. And there's a risk we run in that, depersonalizing God, because God presents himself as a he, as a person, as a conscious, self-aware, volitional being. Also, another factor that sort of goes hand in hand with that, if we're depersonalizing God, then there's a greater risk that we will deify ourselves, clamoring after God's status, clamoring after God's position. And the more we treat ourselves like the central focus in, in our church experience, the central focus of our theology, the reason we go to church is for us, if that's how we're approaching Christianity, we run the risk of deifying ourselves. And a great deal of occultism is little more than self-deification, trying to make yourself godlike in your abilities and knowledge. And another aspect that is typical of an occult worldview is to see the world through a, a lens of magic. And by magic, I'm talking not so much about performing little rituals that are supposed to make things change, but rather believing that there's all sorts of hidden connections between everything so that this is a sign, that is a sign, this is a sign. If I tug on this, it's going to change that over there. But there's no natural connection to those things. From a thoroughly Christian worldview, there's two kinds of causes, you might say. There are personal causes and there are mechanical causes, material causes. So there's personal causes like God said and it happened. Or I talked to my wife and she talked back. These are personal beings, intelligences that are talking to each other. I can raise my arm. I can push a table. I can turn on the TV. These are personal actions, personal causes. There's also mechanical causes, material causes. So that would be most of the scientific type stuff where material forces are interacting, uh, gravity, uh, everything Newton was describing, everything Einstein was describing. Those are mechanical types of causes. And outside of that, what is there? From a thoroughly Christian standpoint, there's demons and angels, but those are personal causes. Those aren't anything else. A magical perspective on things tends to see or imagine that there's uh, connections between other things so that we can find secret messages. The number 37, I heard the number 37 in a dream. What did that mean? God, what does that mean? And so we, we go search through the Bible and check every 37th chapter in the Bible and think we find a theme, and suddenly that's our theme verse, or that's our theme passage, or that's our theme word of the day, and that is special revelation from God. That means something, because I saw the word 37 in a dream. Well, that's a magical view of things. That's not a natural cause, a material cause. It's not a personal or an intelligent cause. That's a something else. That's a, a preternatural cause, or which means not natural but not supernatural. It's in between a preternatural cause. So that's one thing. So now what does this look like in churches? Well, mental magic happens a lot where people are trying to change world forces or events through their thoughts and prayers. Now thoughts and prayers would normally be a fine thing, but when we've depersonalized God and we're not appealing to God to change things, then our thoughts and prayers are us trying to volitionally change things directly by the power of our mind. That's not Christian prayer. That's not how Christians should be thinking. That's not Christian meditation. That's mental magic. If I'm trying to pray in such a way that God's not in the picture and I'm trying to effect healing without God in there and without medicine or natural causes, that's occultism. Another way is magical rituals. Sometimes people try to use rituals uh, to force God to speak, to try to get God to act. We'll call it putting out a fleece with reference to Gideon and how he put out a fleece when an angel came and visited him. Cut to the chase. With Gideon, Gideon was not acting in a way that was good. We shouldn't be putting out a fleece. We should not be testing God. 
Scripture is very clear uh, not to put God to the test, Luke 4.12. Uh, and we should remember, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a miraculous sign, according to Matthew 16.4. It's not for us to say, God, prove yourself to me. Now, God can do what he wants. Sometimes he may grant you that. But if we're testing God, if we're demanding he give us a sign, or we formulate some sort of ritual that he's going to have to respond, that's akin to magic rituals. And another thing is fortune telling. Um, this happens in, in a lot of different ways. When uh, Sometimes we don't use the Bible in its natural revelation way. We try to misuse the Bible. Uh, for example, try to count words and use that number to somehow signify something else. And then we take that number and make a formula out of it and apply it to another verse. This is called numerology or one way to use numerology to get another new meaning, uh, esoteric meaning out of the verse that it never naturally said according to that author. And there's no responsible way that we can get that meaning out of it unless we believe in fortune telling, unless we grant a magical worldview. So there's a lot of ways that occultism can slip into the church. Some denominations are a little more vulnerable because of certain beliefs. I don't want to name names, but some of the more chaotic church services can be dangerously close to occultism. So what are some common misunderstandings about the occult that you think that Christians have? Because you're saying that these kinds of things can slip into the church, but how are people not aware of what occult practices are that would slip into the church? And so therefore they have misunderstandings about it. Well, probably the two biggest misunderstandings. One, it's easy to spot. Well, why would we assume that Satan is going to declare his entrance uh, with bells and whistles? Uh, we know from scripture, Satan uh, comes as an angel of light. I believe if Satan wants to, he can pretend to be Jesus and can meet you in a dream and try to get you to, to do something unbiblical. Why would Satan uh, handicap himself by making his methods, even the most indirect methods, obvious? So I don't think there's any guarantee that occultism is going to be easy to spot whenever it shows up in church. The second biggest misunderstanding is that we can readily tell the difference between Christian faith and practice versus occultism. If we haven't made any effort to learn any of this stuff, then there's no guarantee that our ignorance is going to be sufficient in clearly telling the difference between the two. I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm not trying to say, everybody run for your lives, run for the hills, the church is burning. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that we need to have a proper reverence about it and recognize that when our Christian faith, our Christian practice, if we don't have a sense of what occultism is, we can slip into it. We can do that. The closer we stay to God's word and God's prescriptions, the safer we are. But it can be naive to think that, for example, we can try to get God to speak to us in supernatural ways by using formulas or by using rituals, or as long as I'm visualizing Jesus and not someone else. I don't know that any of that is in itself a reassurance that we won't be dabbling in occultism in the process. Now, I can't go into all of it right now, but I think it's important to recognize that Christianity and occultism can look more similar than we'd like, and Satanism isn't always easy to spot. And I do want to let people know, because they'd say, oh, it just seems so obvious that no such thing would be in a Christian church is the reason why we asked John to write this article for us was back about a year and a half ago in the summer of 2018, there was an article in the New York Times that talked about in Sarasota, Florida area, there were churches that incorporated a lot of these kinds of things. They wed Christianity and metaphysical spirituality and crystals and channel energy as part of their worship services. So I think a lot of us would think, no, that couldn't be happening in actual churches, but that was a whole entire article about it just because in the surrounding area of Sarasota, there's more than they were saying a hundred mediums and spiritual guides and all of these things are very important to people. And it started kind of infiltrating their church, as you said, and part of the worship, actual worship services at this particular church. I think you recommended a, uh, an article that referenced, uh, was it a Barnapole where something like 61% of Christians 
answered in the poll that not only do they have Christian beliefs, but they also affirm occult practices like astrology and astral projection and things like that. Yeah. So it's very, and, and, you know, again, some of these things are becoming part of pop culture. If, you know, people are go to the movies these days or watch shows that you mentioned, they just weave occult practices right into those storylines. So it becomes a natural thing that people just kind of gloss over. But, you know, we should be aware of these practices. We should guard against desensitization. Just be, be conscientious. Just being conscientious is most of the solution. Just being self-aware. Not alarmist, but aware. And I think that's really important. So I want everyone to go and read Jahan's article that's free online at our website. Well, finally, on a lighter note, after all this talk of Satan and the occult, I want to end with some fun rapid fire questions for John. So pumpkin spice latte, yes or pass? Yes. Yes. And today is Halloween. So do you fall into the category of people that will pass out candy in your neighborhood? Or do you go to church for a trunk or treat? <laughs> um, I definitely hand out raisins and tracks. No, um, I don't want to get egged. Uh, we hand out candy. Um I think we're open to trunk or treat though. So are you a structured, organized routine kind of person or go with the flow? Hmm, probably more structured. As I age, I need more advanced planning to be able to fit everything into the day that I hope to accomplish. And what's something on your bucket list? Something on my bucket list. I'm going to develop my own really good gumbo recipe. Yeah, really good gumbo recipe. Oh, that's an unusual thing for a bucket list. Well, <laughs> thanks, John, for being on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. God bless. Today's guest has been John D. Ferrer, and he wrote two online exclusive articles for the Christian Research Journal. One is a film review of the documentary feature film, Hail Satan, and it's called Satanic's Lessons on Religious Freedom. The other is a very in-depth feature article for the journal called Infiltrated, Recognizing and Responding to Cultism in Your Church. You can read both articles for free online at our website, equip.org. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media. Like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page and follow CRI, Christian Research Journal, Hank Hanegraaff, and the Bible Answer Man on Twitter. And please subscribe to the Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities podcast on iTunes, and please rate and review our podcast. When you rate and review our podcast, it helps others see our content. And please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged, Hank's audio podcast, Follow Hank off the grid where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Mm-hmm.